0: Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview biblical scholar Robert M. Price.
1: That's right, the irony is that they say, one day when we get to heaven there'll be some seminar where all these mysteries of the Bible will be explained, and so many of those mysteries are not. uh, We know darn well what it says, it's just that it's unacceptable to fundamentalists, so they have to imagine we don't know.
0: If you like the show and want it to continue, Do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes, or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Robert M. Price. I've interviewed Dr. Bob Price twice before about some of his other work, and those episodes are so popular, and he's always just so damn interesting to listen to, (laughs) that I had to get him back on the show. Uh, This time to talk about his book, Inerrant the Wind, The Evangelical Crisis in Biblical Authority. Bob, it's great to have you back on the show.
1: Oh, what a privilege to be back. Thanks.
0: Bob, your book, Inerrant the Wind, is basically your 1981 doctoral dissertation with some updates, but I found it to be highly relevant to the evangelical world that I was a card-carrying member of even just a few years ago. And it was also a lot more readable than anything. I was expecting it to be for a non-specialist in these subjects. Do you think that's because of how you updated it to release it as a book or because of how you originally wrote it?
1: Oh, it's changed very little, Uh, mainly. uh, There are just a few places where I uh, cut out the word recently and so forth since uh, it's been so long. Uh, But other than that, I really didn't have much. I thought I might have to, and I looked at a couple of books and decided, now where where new things have happened, they've really gone off in a different direction. Mm. And the debate seems to me still to be pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. But I wrote it the same uh, way the uh, I originally had. I don't go in for pretentious, overblown, academic uh, prose. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, you trace the origins of the current debate over the inerrancy of Scripture to Harold Linzel's The Battle for the Bible in the 70s, I think that was. What was Linzel's argument, and what was the early reaction to it among its readers as far as you know?
1: Well, he was a Southern Baptist, and uh, he uh, didn't actually originate this de novo. I think actually uh, Clark Pennock had uh, started it when he was a militant, a conservative uh, inerrantist teaching at a Southern Baptist seminary. Uh, Pennock died just recently, I'm so sorry to uh, to say. Uh, but he, he had been a real zealot at first and insisted that inerrancy was the only way to go. And uh, Lindzel was a Southern Baptist, and I think he was, he was diving into the debate that was beginning just within that den- uh, okay. and he, he saw other things happening of a similar nature in Fuller Seminary and other evangelical bastions. And uh, uh, he, he argued that if you do not say that uh, Scripture says equals God says and that therefore in every way it is reliable, then you've got no sure word from God and pretty much nothing to say in terms of theology or ethics. So no matter what the problems you you may have doing it, you've got to maintain that the Bible is factually inerrant.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, when it comes to evangelicals and the Bible, it's not so simple as just a divide between biblical inerrantists and biblical errantists. There are a lot of different positions, and you sketch some of them in your book. What are some of the major positions that evangelicals might take concerning the authority and errancy or inerrancy of the Bible?
1: Well, I I have never seen anyone else uh, except Robert K. Johnston. He he did try to uh, delineate a couple of different nuances, but it became apparent to me the more I read that you had uh, about five different evangelical views of biblical authority that nonetheless rejected inerrancy and that they were all, I think, unwittingly, conforming more or less, or should I say evolving in the direction of other uh, theological approaches that they hadn't agreed with and and might not still, and there was an irony in that. For instance, uh, there was the view that uh, Daniel Fuller, the son of Charles Fuller, for whom Fuller Seminary was named, he took the view of limited inerrancy. Uh, It was otherworldly. Non-verifiable and thus truly revelational matters, where the Bible had to be inerrant, where it uh, it tells us something that uh, we we couldn't know otherwise. I mean, there's a real revelation, and that uh, you have to take as inerrant, not from a human source. But there's plenty of other stuff like. Uh, claims about what the smallest seed is, that uh, you can verify that one way or the other. It just doesn't really matter. It's not even supposed to be a piece of revelation. It's just the the, uh, window dressing for a uh, revealed statement about faith. If you had faith the size of mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, well, then you could move mountains. So he said on mundane matters on which the Bible touches, it can have errors if you even want to bother to call them that. Well, Clark Pinnock wound up, though he was criticizing Fuller pretty seriously. Uh, he sliced the pie a little bit differently, but wound up saying the same thing. He said that the assertions of the Bible are inerrant, but the assumptions of the biblical writers are not necessarily inerrant. And again, if one of them thinks the mustard seed is the smallest seed, and it's not, well, who cares? Any idiot can see that's not really the point. Jesus isn't teaching botany. and uh, But I tried to show in the dissertation, and Pinnock accepted this. He was on my committee, but ultimately, he winds up saying the same thing because if, uh, as Fuller, because if a Bible writer uh, makes some assumption that deals with God, that is like since God is a loving Father, He's acted in salvation. You, you can't say that uh, it might not be true. God is a loving Father, even though that's simply taken for granted. So it's only. Worldly scientific matters upon which the assumptions of the writer are negotiable, and he admitted, "Yeah, all right, I am basically saying the same thing." And uh, so that's one view that uh, it's, and this is a typical Roman Catholic view, and has been for a long time, that the Bible, when it speaks of matters necessary to salvation, it's inerrant, but the rest of it, who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, and my problem with that one was that you guys couldn't disqualify Rudolf Bultmann, who says the assertion of the biblical writer concerning salvation is we can have authentic existence in the resurrected Jesus Christ, but of course the the terms of that statement the assumptions are based on a pre-scientific and mythic worldview that we don't have to accept so that jesus actually come out of that tomb well, of course not but uh, we can be we can have authentic existence through christ well they would never want to be in the position to even allow that as legitimate yet there was no real uh, barrier anymore and i believe uh, Clark even admitted that uh, so there was a problem well some some said uh, uh, okay, uh, you got a point there. Uh, Maybe instead of inerrancy, we ought to speak of infallibility and uh, that the the um, at least partial infallibility only of doctrine. Jack Rogers and some others uh, argued this, that there is a single saving message and not even every assertion. I mean, if it happens to mention that um, what was it, Satan and uh, the archangel Michael disputed over the corpse of Moses over there in the epistle of Jude? Do we really have to believe that? I mean, had they left out Jude, we'd never hear of this. Uh, is it that important? Eh, to heck with it. Uh, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the infallible thing. We might not be able to dogmatize about anything else, but really who needs to. And so, um uh, G.C. Burkauer and influenced by him Jack Rogers and others said, yeah, the infallibility of the gospel. And James D.G. Dunn and Charles Kraft and others said, well, you know, uh, the whole Bible doesn't quite even agree on what the gospel is exactly. Uh, So uh, maybe we should, uh, instead of narrowing it down, expand it. Maybe we ought to say whatever option the Bible contains is all right for people today. And we'll wind up not agreeing, just like James didn't agree with Paul or the New Testament didn't agree with the Old, what the heck? Uh, if it's biblical, it's okay. Kraft called this a tether model. It gives you kind of a circumference. You can't start believing the reincarnation as a Christian. That's not in the Bible. But uh, different Christologies, well, yeah, why not? If it's good enough for Mark, it's good enough for me. Then others said, um, others like uh, feminists, for instance, took it a different way. They said, Maybe it's a matter of dropping the cultural assumptions of the Bible, and who cares about the factual matters, uh, even in terms of ethical teaching. If it says women shut up and stay barefoot and pregnant, let's admit it says that, but let's just say it's a relic of the age in which they lived. It's not really integral to the... Christian gospel and doesn't derive from it, just forget it. I mean, we know it said not to wear makeup and, uh, and jewelry and first Peter, we don't care about that. Why is this any different? And my, my problem with that was, well, you go right ahead, but then again, why isn't Bultmann right? Why not say that supernaturalism is a vestige of an outworn age? Uh-huh. And then finally, the fifth one was uh, the uh, Catholicizing view. Robert Weber and others, uh, Weber, another great evangelical spokesman, uh, dead a number of years now. He uh, said that, uh, all right, we can't uh, have unanimity among the New Testament writers. They disagree. So do we, but that just shows you that. Um, We have to abandon Scripture alone, the great Protestant slogan, and go back to the early church as our model and our uh, rule of faith. But this is hopelessly naive because the early church completely disagreed on all sorts of things. So I I said that the, the only way to go, which they're implicitly doing, is to say give me some rule of faith. And sure enough, some of these people became Roman Catholics, others joined the Eastern Orthodox churches, and so they just picked a church and said, okay, you tell us what the Bible means.
0: (laughs) And so here's
1: a great oddity that Lindzel was right. He said, if you abandon inerrancy, you're not going to remain an evangelical anymore. That's a slippery slope. And I wound up saying he was quite right. All of these people it may not be wrong to do so, have become neo-Orthodox or uh, or Catholic or uh, Bultmannian, at least implicitly, and let's hang on and see if they do it explicitly, and some have.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. And then are there people who, on the way other extreme, are so extreme about inerrancy that they would still assert that, say, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, just like a lot of people still assert young earth creationism?
1: I don't know in specifics. The only... Actual
0: spin I know
1: of on that is to mistranslate it as the New International Version does. Uh, there's one place. Actually, there's two versions of this. Versions of this, and in one of them, Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, and yet, etc. And the NIV mistranslates this as the mustard seed is the smallest of all your seeds. Now, of course, Jesus being like Klaatu, a space alien, uh, knows better, but he's speaking to these ignorant Earthmen, and that's the smallest they know. That's gratuitous. It doesn't have that pronoun in the original. I don't know what they do with the other version in which he says it's the smallest seed on the Earth. Uh, but uh, maybe they say, well, he might have meant on the land, and, and perhaps there are no, no orchid seeds in Palestine. I don't know, but uh, I think they just uh, kind of uh, clear the throat and go on with something else. <laughs> but with, with there are two others. Of course, harmonization remains the big strategy. Mm-hmm. Like Linzell said, that uh, how about these denial stories where... Peter is shown denying a blue streak. You were with this, Jesus, weren't you? Jesus, i never heard of him. And uh, he's speaking three times in each gospel, but to different people, a doorkeeper, a servant girl, a crowd, etc., etc. And uh, so what does Lindzel do? This is nothing new. He said, well, actually, Peter must have made a denial to six different listeners, uh, D.F. Strauss pointed out way back in the 19th century that if you're really consistent, he had to have denied Jesus eight or nine times. He already knew about this subterfuge. But you see what you wind up with there. Each given denial is factually true, but all the Gospels are wrong because they clearly tell a story in which he denies Jesus three times. But he didn't. He denied, denied him six or eight times. And so what is the difference between this and what they damn scholars for doing by, like, for instance, saying, we prefer Q to Matthew, a hypothetical original that's a bit different well, I can see so why they'd be upset about that, but th- they're doing the same thing. Uh, this, this hypothetical original that we've cobbled together, that's what really happened. So that they harmonize, and then sometimes they will say, well, it depends on what you mean by an error. W- what we consider an error, would they have had the same standards of precision? Uh, maybe not. Edward uh, Harrison uh, out at uh, Fuller Seminary said this, I think, in the 50s. But the problem there is they don't seem to understand if they're saying that they are rejecting the whole idea of inerrancy. Bultmann would say that. He said that they they weren't even trying to come up with anything like modern history, but the evangelical apologists want them to have done just that, so it's pure opportunism.
0: You're looking at this from kind of a theological point of view, and I'm probably most familiar with it from a explicitly apologetic point of view in apologetics often what's happening is the the believer is trying to provide evidence for their belief in something or other and they say well the Bible says it here but how can they legitimize that if they're willing to admit that there are lots and lots of things in the Bible that are not true or are contradictory but just you know aren't important for theology
1: Well, uh, the, well, Fuller is a great case of that. He, he did a book on apologetics for the resurrection. And it struck me that he, he came up with a colossal self contradiction because in a book called Easter Faith and History, he says you can make, uh, pretty close to a proof historically that the resurrection must have happened. Some of his arguments are really bizarre, like how can you explain the supposed change in Barnabas being willing to sell his land and give it to the church unless a guy really came out of a grave? I don't know what he was thinking. Uh. But the the irony is, if you combine his inerrancy view with his apologetics view, uh, the uh, resurrection being susceptible to historic verification is no longer an otherworldly revelation and we need not consider it inerrant. Well, I don't think he understood the balls he was juggling uh, but uh, in another sense maybe he did because William Lane Craig and other apologists are speaking out of different sides of their mouths depending on the occasion. If they're talking to unbelievers they say look we know we can't expect you to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible uh, so we are trying to field probabilistic arguments that any historian might accept. I think I can show you that the gospel resurrection stories are reliable simply as ancient history, not as not to be believed because they're inspired by the Spirit no no I realize that's not on the table. Well that's uh, very uh, dangerous because that kind if you meant it, which they don't, it's it's just a pose but but many young apologists like me uh, did mean it and uh, we began to realize well, if, if on this crucial thing probability is good enough that we have to be able to show it's probable uh, then you've stepped into the marshy bog uh, of, of genuine historiography and it's difficult to put the other hat back on uh, you, you it's like a double truth theory uh, if, if it's really if it really takes probabilistic weighing of possibilities that implies a Tentative judgment in case other evidence are to come up. But wait a minute, I'm su- as a Christian, I'm supposed to believe this. Well, Craig and the others find no problem because they're just pretending to be objective anyway. They adopt the posture of the old uh, 18th century rationalists who said, uh, look, we all believe the Bible is based on eyewitness testimony, don't we? It's just a question of whether there was any supernatural causation." Uh, And so they try to refute the, the swoon theory, which says, well, the Bible must be right when it describes the crucifixion. And when it describes uh, appearances of Jesus afterward, but suppose he just swooned on the cross, yeah, that's it. That's all these guys think they have to argue for. Oh, yeah, we all agree. Joseph of Arimathea buried uh, Jesus in his tomb, and the the, uh, women disciples came to see uh, what happened, and they found it. empty. Everybody agrees on that, right? So simply as historians, we can accept wait just a second. You're being an inerrantist three-fourths of the way, and then saying, well, you might as well just go the uh, the last quarter of the way. So they're they're really um, perhaps self-deceptive, but they're being deceptive, and they're assuming it's inerrant, and that you too will think it is inerrant, and so it's nothing but a sham, but those who do take it uh with this mere probability approach, are not long for the evangelical community. Uh, Like me and many others, they're eventually going to bid Toyland goodbye and head into actual New Testament scholarship. I'm waiting for Michael Icona to do that a big apologist, protégé of Gary uh, Habermas. I've talked to him enough. He is so smart, he's got to see through the bogus arguments that he's he's captivated by. I'm waiting to see him uh, turn coat.
0: Yeah, I had a discussion with Mike, and we came to a, a point in our dialogue about the evidence for the resurrection Um, where I said, look, even if I granted that God existed, which I don't, but even if I grant theism, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in first century Palestine would still be extremely implausible because for all the reasons that it's standardly implausible, for the same reason that uh, Hindu miracles are implausible and for the same reason that Buddhist miracles are implausible and for the same reason that Muslim miracles are implausible. And he said, well, okay, but if we knew that God existed, and if we knew that an all-powerful being wanted to raise Jesus from the dead, then— Which we the, don't. I know, and I'm just like, yeah, but that's the whole point. We don't know something like that. I mean, that's just like saying if we knew that, you know, uh, God wanted to perform some Hindu miracle, then the, Hindu mir- the probability that the Hindu miracle happened uh, gets close to it. But the, we don't know that. That's the whole point. So I wonder if eventually he's going to see through that, uh, like you say.
1: Yeah, he's too smart not to. The the great refutation of all of this nonsense. I forget who did does this cartoon, but there's some internet cartoon called Jesus and Moe, yeah. where it's this, this dialogue between Jesus and Muhammad it's each great time. Cartoon. I'm surprised it's still alive. Uh, And uh, in one of them, Jesus is arguing for his own resurrection, and Muhammad said, that's silly, that's just like uh, arguing that uh, there must be an emerald city of Oz, because otherwise, where does the yellow brick road lead? You you can't just argue for one part of a story from another part of the same story.
0: Yeah, that's that's a lot of what uh, historical apologetics is. What you were saying earlier about the kind of double truth stance reminds me a lot of William Lane Craig, where he will almost explicitly endorse a kind of double truth theory where he'll say, you know, there's a difference between how I show Christianity to be true and how I know Christianity to be true and how I show Christianity to be true is with arguments and these evidence and things like that but then really the evidence doesn't matter because then that would mean that people who don't have access to that information aren't justified to believe in Christianity and we can't have that so there has to be like a direct line to the Holy Spirit and that justifies faith and these arguments don't actually matter in some yeah. way, and that's it's very confusing. Yeah, uh, he's just so lucky that the facts happen to back
1: up this gut feeling he has. (laughs) It's no different than the teenage Mormon apologist saying, well, I get this, this swelling feeling in my stomach when I ask God to verify that the Book of Mormon is true. Yeah, that really proves something. As John Warwick Montgomery used to say, how do you know it's not just indigestion? Uh, it's uh, it's absurd. It's what Derrida calls presence metaphysics. It just seems self-evident to you. Well, a lot of things seem self-evident to a lot of idiots. Uh, that just means nothing. And and it just shows uh, Craig is nothing but an opportunist. He says, if I uh, fail to convince you, you ought to believe anyway. It just means I must have done a poor job. In other words, it just doesn't make any difference what you say. Can't you just walk down to the front? I see that hand. You come forward tonight in the stadium. That's all that's really going on. Uh, you can't uh, make a historical snap judgment. No historian does that about anything. And they're just baggy pants medicine show frauds. Like I hate to say that. I would not say that about... Clark Pemmick, for instance, as a, uh, as a theologian, he's very sophisticated and wrote very interesting stuff. I wouldn't say that about Jack Rogers or a bunch of these people as theologians. That's a different game. But this kind of thing is just a cheap
0: sham. Um bob i'm going to do something dangerous and ask you to be a psychologist for a moment because i've never really understood literal inerrancy since there are so many direct and obvious contradictions and errors in the in the Bible. I mean, how could there not be it's a It's a library of books written by dozens of people of several different worldviews across more than a millennium of time. Uh, whether or not it has errors and contradictions is in such a vast library of ancient human thought really only becomes an issue when somebody makes the outrageous claim that the whole thing is word for word flawless. But how, I want to know, how does anyone really believe that if they've actually read the Bible
1: well, because they've read it under coaching. They've been told by the people that got them converted that the Bible is a massive set of jigsaw puzzle pieces. And if you put all the verses taken out of context, the ones I care about, of course, most of them are re- relevant, like the whole Old Testament, practically. Uh, if you take the relevant verses out of context and put them together the right way, uh, you'll get a, a theological system. and. Inerrancy only matters as the guarantee that we're entitled to take those verses seriously. Like they tell you to witness with the Roman roads to salvation. Uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But if you believe in your heart that uh, Je- Jesus is Lord and confess in their mouth that God is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. There's nothing about the larger argument of Romans or the presence of contradictory verses even in the same document that that would suggest maybe I'm not reading this right. No, 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 we just need to know the Bible is inspired so we can proof text it. And once we do, that's the thing we're really interested in believing. Nobody would even care about uh, King Pekah uh, of Israel if there weren't contradictory accounts of how long he ruled and that only matters because they're afraid it will endanger the gospel. Because the Bible must be infallible to guarantee the gospel. It's this Rube Goldberg chain. They don't give a damn about uh, most of what the Bible says. It's just a few statements here and there.
0: Yeah, yeah there's uh i'm reminded of this excellent joke i read you know what a software license is where you install some program and you have to you have to read this like 20 page thing and click i agree but none of us none of us ever read it right we just scroll to the bottom and you're like well maybe i'm you know selling my body to this company for organ harvesting but i don't have (laughs) time to read this so i'm just gonna click i agree and this kind of blind faith in the bible makes me think that um, you know, that's what Christians are doing. They just they scroll to the bottom and click "I agree," and that's that's what the Bible. That's is exactly
1: them. right. That's a great analogy. They don't really care what's in it. Uh, I just got to yeah. get to heaven. If this is the ticket to heaven and this is the price of it, that's what I'm paying. Yeah. And they just feel that uh, the the uh, party line has to be upheld uh, and it's not exactly a question of belief any more than uh, any politician spokesman is really uh, con- or anybody in a commercial it's irrelevant as to whether they believe what they're saying they're simply paid to uphold the party line and that's what apologists do it has to be true there's no authentic judgment as to whether it's true or
0: not yeah well, I do say that I have some sympathy for believing in errantists because I remember that what that was like. I was a believing in at one point, and I remember um you know, like you say, being coached in how I read the Bible, and so I kind of accepted that it all had to be true, and all the apparent contradictions and just bizarre absurdities had some kind of explanation and I would actually get mad at people who point them out pointed those things out as errors or contradictions and say well how how can you know that there's not you know some you know roundabout way or whatever that this all really makes sense you know you're not you think you're god you think you know everything and then it was only later that i realized how incredibly backward that was um, yeah. but it's a very common it's a very common perspective and I, I kind of psychologically sympathize with it because that's how my psychology worked at one point
1: well, it's a matter. Of, that's what presuppositionalism, uh, with Van Til and his successors, uh, makes explicit. They say that uh, it's almost like uh, Thomas Kuhn and the paradigm revolution business. Your worldview carries its own criteria of, of mm-hmm. probability and plausibility. Uh, if, if this is the the way we put things together, then we have a reading for all evidence, and uh, it's going to be deemed plausible insofar as it fits our paradigm. Uh, If it doesn't, it's problematical, but we can come up with a place for everything. So, since the inerrantist is committed to the belief the Bible is true, any kind of trick that will get the Bible off the hook is consistent, because it's consistent with what he wants to believe, whether it's consistent with another argument he uses, or Not So, yeah, they're consistent, just uh, not with with the standard you would think, and uh, that's the problem. I remember once uh, in high school, I was at the shopping mall witnessing with somebody else from our youth group, and she said to someone, well, the Bible's got to be the Word of God, don't you see? Because despite its length and the dates and the authors, there are no contradictions. And I immediately thought, well, wait a minute in church, we're all the time hearing about how, yes, there are apparent contradictions, but since we know it's inspired, there must be a way out of them. Doesn't that mean that uh, the outsider would uh, would see contradictions and, and not readily believe it's inspired? We have to get them to believe it's inspired another way, a prior decision for Christ, which is a decision for our creed, and then they'll see the need to uh, put everything in, in line. So I, it suddenly dawned on me we were talking out of both sides of our mouths, depending on who the audience was. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think to some believers who might be listening, it'll sound like you and I have been trashing on the Bible the whole interview, um, but that's not how I see it, at least. it's only It's only... We're only trashing on the extreme just insane view that there are no contradictions or errors in this entire library of of ancient texts um but i wanted to hear from you how do you read the bible bob what in what ways do you appreciate the bible
1: well very much as you just said and and the thing that really irritates me about inerrantism is the blinders it imposes on people who would understand the Bible. Uh, you, you wind up looking at it and saying, well, it can't mean this. Uh, it seems you, you start out doing what old Martin Luther said and reading it like you would any other ancient uh, piece of literature. You got your homework cut out reconstructing the ancient setting and uh, what the words mean and all that. But once you do, you read it as you would any any other text, uh, and uh, then it, it, it matters that it's inspired because you you feel obliged to believe it and obey it. But once that only once you've read it as you read anything else. Well, you, you're not doing that if you approach the book saying, you know, since this is an inspired uh, revelation from God, I know deductively that it cannot have contradictions or errors in yeah. it. So when it seems that it does, i got to twist the text to make it look like it doesn't. Hey, wait a second. As Luther said, he was trying to trying to fend off Roman Catholic allegorizing of of the text, making it symbolic of indulgences of the Pope or whatever. But but the same thing with harmonizations, you can't do that. If you can feed the Bible through the meat grinder of your theology, you don't even need the Bible anyway. Uh, So I admit that uh, reading it, as Luther said to, uh, brings in biblical criticism, and you really cannot use the Bible as, a, as an oracle book of theology and ethics anymore. You really do see that it is a very complex matter, and, and it does not uh, admit of, of allowing you to dogmatize on it. So the jig is up, the game is over. You, you really have to treat the Bible in a different way than evangelicals do. So I see why they fear it, but you just can't reject it because you don't like it. Uh, it's if You have to be fearless about the Bible uh, to see what it says. And if you love the Bible, it really doesn't matter what it says. You're glad to know it. Uh, and, okay, things are tough. It's not as easy as fundamentalists want it to be, but let's just uh, put away childish things and get used to that. Mm.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you put it in one of your books. You talk about how, look, if somebody started asserting that the epics of Homer were inerrant, all of the lovers of the Homeric epics, all of the scholars of the Homeric epics who have devoted you know, careers to them would uh, take up arms and, and, and fight against this. Uh, because, they it, exactly. because they love it, not because they hate it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah,
1: I love the Bible. I'm endlessly fascinated by the Bible. And so it really fries me to see these hacks and phonies trying to sell this absurd notion that it's without error. Because that's going to. I mean, you can believe that if you wanted to. You can believe in Santa Claus if you wanted to. But, but it's going to prevent anybody from understanding this book. And isn't that the goal, supposedly?
0: I've experienced that personally, Bob, coming out of the deductive mode of reading the Bible as you say where I suddenly started to realize the integration that some of the texts had with other ancient cultures other Near East ancient cultures I started to see the way that um it had kind of uh synthesized or or copied from those ancient cultures I started to see um the complexity of the cosmology it wasn't just you know creation ex nihilo Um, There was something more complex in there that fit with the ancient Near East, um, other ancient Near East uh, cosmologies. I mean, there's a lot of really incredible, interesting things in that set of ancient books that you can't see if you've decided deductively beforehand that it has to be literally true.
1: That's right. The irony is that they say... One day when we get to heaven, there'll be some seminar where all these mysteries of the Bible will be explained. <laughs> and so many of those mysteries are not. Uh, we yeah. know darn well what it says. It's just that yeah. it's unacceptable to fundamentalists, so they have to imagine we don't know.
0: Yeah, it's it's they're throwing away all the knowledge that we have found. I mean, a lot of the Bible still is mysterious, but a lot of these so-called mysteries have been solved. We do understand them very well, but just don't, those understandings don't fit in with uh, fundamentalist theology, and so they have to say, well, no, that's not the answer. We really don't still understand this, and we need a, a, a seminar in heaven from Jesus.
1: It's very
0: different to say,
1: Jesus said, uh, I won't leave you orphans, I'm going to leave and go to heaven and uh, bring you with me at some point. Now, that might be true, it might not be true, but uh, to say, I'm going to believe this promise based on faith, I know it's a risk, I don't uh, really have any problem with that. The It's a risk. You know it going in. But to look at uh, the text and deny the facts about it, that's a whole different kind of faith that you just don't – you can't do with a clear conscience. Uh, Nietzsche said uh, faith is being afraid of the truth. I think – Uh, Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Uh, Well, you just don't have the right to that kind of faith. That's just cheating and self-deception. And and unfortunately, people draw no distinction between them.
0: You know, actually, I think the same distinction was made by one previous guest of mine, James Sennett, who is a philosopher, and he talked about the nature of faith. And he said, look, we all engaged in faith to some level throughout our daily lives, just because we don't have time to get robust evidence for everything, mm. you know, that we believe in order to get through the day. Um, but faith, the kind of faith that believes something in total contradiction to all the evidence, that's another kind of faith. And he, uh, I think he maybe mentioned something about the word faith and what it meant in the greek in in paul and stuff like that and he, he made an argument as to whether as to to the idea that that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that means believe in contradiction to the evidence but i don't really know the greek so i couldn't comment
1: yeah i don't think nuances like that uh occur in it. I, I, in fact, I think uh, faith very often, even in Paul, just means the Christian religion. I think we've we've had a lot of over-theologizing of it to try to squeeze in revivalism all over the place. Like mm-hmm. uh, Believing in Christ means having a personal relationship with him. That is utter nonsense. Uh, and it's just your religious allegiance. It doesn't necessarily mean any more than that. Or all this agape, oh, this means a certain type of... No, no, it doesn't. And there's just so much mystification of the text in the interest of theology. Uh, it's uh, it's just funny to see.
0: Now, Bob, when you were having this change of mind within yourself uh, a long time ago about what the Bible meant and how to read it. What was your experience? Did the Bible, did the Bible seem very dim at first because you lo- it had lost its central importance to the universe, or was it more exciting immediately? Or what was your journey?
1: I had a sense of anxiety, but uh, the limited inerrancy thing appealed to me uh, to to have the the liberty to get real about the thing. I didn't uh-huh. yet see that there were big problems even with a single gospel or consistent theology, but to admit, yeah, all right, there, there are uh, errors in the Bible, it just doesn't matter, that was uh, a great uh, liberation. And uh, I guess what uh, what really shook me up, though, was shortly thereafter finding out about the... the uh, the errors of uh, historical apologetics, because I had moved on to this marshy ground of probabilis- probabilistic judgment to defend the thing, and there was no way to go back. I couldn't just pretend it was believable by faith, uh, and uh, that really, I think, uh, was the the thing that destroyed my my. Uh, Faith in the Bible. I continued to love it, and and I was excited that it was much more understandable. And and once I dropped evangelicalism, I hate to say this, but it was like being born again. Uh, the the world and everybody in it looked so much different and more vibrant and vital to me and uh, because it wasn't stuck in these categories the saved versus the unsaved and all of that Uh, so uh, it it was there was a little anxiety but it was greater and greater liberation and freedom
0: well Bob your love for the Bible really does come through in your works and uh, I appreciate what you've written and and shared of your knowledge about the Bible Uh, Bob it's been a pleasure speaking to you again thanks for coming back on the show
1: Oh, you too. You're a great interviewer.
0: In the next episode, I'll be interviewing philosopher Robert Gressis about theism versus naturalism. So stay tuned for more conversations from the pale blue dot.